Father, as we come to your word tonight, we thank you for it. We thank you that it is inerrant. We thank you that it is infallible. And we thank you that it is authoritative over our lives. And so we submit ourselves to it, and we ask you that you would grant us understanding, clarity, and wisdom in seeing how it should affect our lives for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at a couple verses tonight, or maybe a verse and a half. Verses 15 and the first half of verse 16. Now, I may be guilty of overanalysis from time to time, as my wife and my daughter can attest to, but one of the Christian catchphrases or slogans that drives me bonkers is the old bumper sticker, and you may have seen it yourself, the old bumper sticker that says, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Uh, You you may have seen that somewhere online if you're kind of young, but I do remember as far back as maybe the mid to late 70s, seeing that car on bumper stickers. And that's one place back in the day, the bumper, uh, that's one place where people shared their feelings before social media was a thing, right? Uh, and of course, there's, a, a, there's an element of truth to that bumper sticker, to that, that slogan. It's, it's correct. Uh, no, we're not perfect. Yes, we are forgiven. So those two things are true. But let me, let me propose a scenario for you and try to imagine this. Try to imagine that you're driving down the road and some maniac makes a, a three-lane lane change, if you know what I'm talking about. They go from the far left to the far right. Uh, happens all the time down on 164th by the five, by the way. So, so you're, you're driving down the road and some maniac cuts you off, three-lane change, And to add fuel to the fire, you see that he has one of those Christian fish emblems on the back of his car. And as you survey the rest of the bumper, which, by the way, is way too close to you at that point, no fault of your own, you see this bumper sticker. Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. And it just so happens that they're going to the same exact place that you were going. Church, of course, right? Where else would you be going? And so you jokingly say, hey, uh, you're the guy who cut me off in traffic. And he turns around, and he looks at you, and he laughs, and he goes, well, Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. As if that's an excuse for him driving like he's blind. Um, so it can almost be an excuse for antinomianism. But let me give you another slogan that I can't stand. Christianity isn't a religion. It's a personal relationship. And again, there's an element of truth to that statement, but I hate to break it to you. Christianity is, by definition, a religion, but it was never meant to be viewed or understood as strictly a personal relationship. Now, you may have heard me say before that I would say that every person on the face of the earth has a relationship, a personal relationship, with God. But for many, it's the same relationship that a treasonous murderer has to a just judge. So while it's true that there's a personal element to our relationship to God as people who have been ransomed and redeemed, it's very dangerous to see our relationship to God as an exclusively or even mostly personal thing. 
See, you do have personal relationships, right? You, you have a personal relationship with your personal trainer, for example. He or she will help you, uh, you know, come up with a, a, an exercise routine, some kind of diet regimen, all that works for you, all that caters to your schedule and your preferences, et cetera, et cetera. You have a personal accountant or maybe a personal financial advisor who works with you to prepare a retirement based on you, based on your needs, based on what you spend, based on what you want to do when you retire and what age you want to retire. The pattern that you see is that when we make relationships personal, it's so that we can customize them so that they can suit our needs, our likes, our aspirations. But that is not the way that it works with God. While there is a personal element of redemption, your relationship to God is not to be developed in a way that suits your needs or or fits your likes or your aspirations. And for that reason, our relationship with God was designed not to be individual, but to be communal. We're We're to express our faith individually, yes, but as a community. The church consists of multiple individuals who are, each of whom is in Christ Jesus. We, plural, are the bride, singular, of Christ. We're not the brides of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And so there's one sense in which each of us has come individually to know and be welcomed by God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, your relationship to God has personally changed. You as a person have changed. You're no longer a child of wrath, and there's a legitimate sense in which you have come to know God. And yet, for each of us, there's also a sense in which we are called, instructed, to grow in our knowledge of God as a community through the ages. And that's what we find at the heart of the prayer that Paul will begin in our passage tonight. As we continue in our study of the book of Ephesians, we'll be looking at verse 15 and and the first half of verse 16. And we have to recall that Paul has given us what is maybe the most amazing, the most profound doxological statement in all of scriptures. That's what we find between verses 3 and 14 of chapter 1. It's all one thought. In the Greek, it's, it's all one sentence that flows from the statement that God has blessed us with every heavenly blessing. That was all the way back in verse 3. So starting then with verse 15 tonight is a new thought. There's going to be a, a change of direction here. Now he goes into a prayer that's going to stretch from verse 15 to verse 23. And so we're going to be looking at verses 15 and 16. And we'll see that the point here is that as a Christian community, we should be characterized by two things. Number one, faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And number two, a profound love for his people. So Paul begins this section, writing in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So Paul starts this, this section that we're beginning tonight by saying, for this reason. 
And what does that cause us to do? It causes us to think, for what reason, right? So we should be looking backwards now to see what he has established. It's kind of his way of saying, in light of these truths. So the truths that we've seen. So he's saying, in, in light of the fact that we have been given every heavenly blessing, election and adoption by the Father, redemption, forgiveness, a grace that's been lavished on us, and the revelation of God's eternal purposes by the Son, and the seal or the guarantee of our future inheritance by the Holy Spirit. In light of these truths, Paul is going to pray for them. And he prays that the recipients of this letter would grow deeper and stronger and higher in their walk with the Lord. Paul's prayer models for us the type of prayer that we too should be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul's basically saying, because we have all these blessings in Christ, because we have every heavenly blessing in Christ, I thank God for you. But the fact that the, the, the recipients, the, the, the Christians who received this letter had every heavenly blessing in Christ wasn't the only reason that he gave thanks for them. We have to ask, how, how could Paul confidently address them knowing that they were recipients of these heavenly blessings that he outlined for us in the previous section? And, and the answer to that question is by uh, noticing um, what he follows up for this reason with. He follows that up by showing us two very important qualities that should be found in each and every individual Christian. Every community of Christians as well. The first quality is that they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is really kind of an obvious one. If somebody's going to be a Christian, you would think that they would have faith in Christ. Uh, anyone who receives the spiritual blessings outlined in the previous section receives them by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it might seem obvious that for someone to be a Christian, they have to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but that has almost never been everyone's uh, understanding of how it works. Um, if you think about the South, you know, sometimes if you go to the South, people think, well, if you're, if you're an American, you're a Christian because we're a Christian nation. And that's not the way it works. But let's go back further than that. For the Roman Catholic Church, what makes somebody a Christian? Works. Works is what makes somebody a Christian. They must be committed to getting on this absolutely crazy, elaborate treadmill of works in order to be considered part of the church. So it starts with being baptized. And usually they baptize infants, right? They baptize babies. Have you ever wondered why they baptize? What the purpose for them in baptizing is? It's to wash away original sin. According to their own doctrine, according to Part 3, Article 2 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is on the Vatican's website, it says, quote, The grace of the Holy Spirit has the power to justify us, that is, to cleanse us from our sins and to communicate to us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ and through baptism. And through baptism. It goes on to say justification is conferred in baptism. Not confirmed, but conferred. That is, it's given, it's granted when a person does this work. When a person 
is baptized. And I got this straight from the Vatican's website. After baptism, a person is saved. They're, they're free from original sin, right? But they must work to maintain their salvation through this rigorous set of works that lay before them. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, once a person is saved, a person, that person must, quote, merit for themselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life, end quote. Now think about this for a second. Think about what this is saying for just a moment. It, if you have to do all these things to merit, that is to earn or to deserve grace, what is your faith, what is your confidence, what is your trust actually going to be in? You. Your faith will be in you and your ability to adhere to and to fulfill and to perform all these works. The faith that this promotes is a faith that's in the self. Your faith is in your performance. That's what a Roman Catholic must look at and trust in for salvation. Themselves and their ability to earn grace. That is not only not biblical, it is actually the very antithesis of the gospel. It's the very opposite of the gospel. At the very best, this reduces down to moralism. Moralism says, look at me. Look at all the things that I've done. Look at how good I am. Look at how much grace I have earned for myself. Look at how much grace I deserve. And it is powerless to save. It is powerless to save. It, it cannot earn you favor. It cannot earn you grace. By definition, you can't earn grace. And it cannot earn you salvation. If your hope is in yourself and what you've done to maintain good standing with God, the danger is that you don't even know who God is because you don't even know what God requires. And if you think about it, there were similar things in, in Paul's day. The, the idea in Paul's day was that circumcision was the means by which a person was saved in essentially the same way that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that baptism saves a person. But Paul wanted them to understand that that's not the way that it works. And not only is that not the way that it worked in Paul's day, but that's never been the way salvation worked with God. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone. And it has never been by works. And so to correct the thinking of any of the, the Christian Jews who were in Rome, who might have had this idea that a person is circumcised uh, in order to be saved, Paul illustrated the doctrine of salvation by faith alone by pointing to Abraham. In Romans chapter 4, Paul asks them the question, when was Abraham justified? Before he was circumcised or after? And he goes on to say this. He says, For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How, then, was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. And Paul continues saying, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, 
For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. So see, Paul's correcting the same type of thinking. There's a way to, to earn your salvation other than through, other than receiving it through faith. So faith is the means by which we receive the promise of salvation. And Paul has heard about the faith of the churches in Asia Minor, including the church in Ephesus. But whom is their faith in? It's not in themselves. It's not a faith that looks to the self. No, again, that's, that's moralism. That's the very antithesis of the gospel. Moralism looks to the self, and it is powerless to pull a single soul from the broad path that leads to hell. But the gospel says, look at Christ. Repent and believe in him. Look at what he did. He took the sins of his people upon himself. And he bore the wrath that they rightfully deserved as their substitutionary atonement. In this wonderful news, the gospel has the power to ransom and to redeem any and every hell-bound sinner who will repent and believe. The faith of the recipients of Paul's letter here, their faith was in the Lord Jesus. And notice, by the way, he, he says the Lord Jesus. Your faith is in the Lord Jesus. It wasn't just in Jesus. Paul refers to Jesus as Lord because that's the way a true Christian recognizes Jesus as well. A Christian doesn't view Jesus as a guru to receive advice from or as a personal cheerleader who's there to cheer them on and make them feel good about themselves. A Christian doesn't view Jesus as their homeboy. There's a popular one in our day and age. Jesus is God incarnate, and he is to be feared and obeyed. John says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Christ is Lord. Christ is, is, is Lord. That title insinuates Christ's authority, his lordship, his dominion over the church. And this is the first reason Paul gives for being thankful for the people he's writing to. The second is also found in verse 15. It's because of their love for the saints. Their love for the saints. Now, if, if you were to ask a Roman Catholic, what qualifies a person as a saint? They, they'd have kind of a, a laundry list of things, including, you know, they, they, they have to have died and they have to have por- uh, performed at least two miracles post-mortem. And in other words, after they die, they have to perform two miracles to confirm their sainthood. But that is not the biblical definition of the saint. Paul is writing to them and addressing people as saints. All of his letters almost address them as saints. He's not writing to dead people. He's writing to living, active believing people a saint is someone who has simply placed saving faith in the lord jesus christ in an age in which we customize and and personalize and individualize absolutely everything maybe it's no surprise that there are many who would say things like well you know I, i i love jesus but i don't like the church i love jesus but i don't love or like, or want to be with his people. And this is one subject 
that the Bible is just abundantly, abundantly clear on. There is no room for anyone to claim to be a Christian if they hate the church, if they hate Christians, if they don't love Christians. There again, you see the reflection of the fact that we were designed to be a community. Instead of being little islands of faith that are kind of close, but we're, we're spread out, we're designed to be a continent, one piece that stands together. And the Apostle John addressed this issue head on in very clear language. He writes in 1 John 3, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I don't know if John could have made it more clear. If you hate the church, you can't claim to love the one who ransomed and redeemed the church. And in our day and age, this is a major, major concern for the upcoming generation who thinks that everything can be individualized and customized who thinks that, you know, we can be, a, there's such thing as a lone ranger Christian, somebody who just stands alone and worships in their own way. If you're familiar with Summer White, she's the daughter of James White, who is a well-known uh, Christian debater, Christian apologist. Uh, a few weeks ago, she posted a picture by a woman who was sitting lakeside somewhere saying that that was her church today. Nobody else around. Just her and some sunshine and the lake. And she considers that her church. This is the type of thinking that the Bible specifically warns us against. Taking the attitude that I'm an island, not a continent. I can isolate myself from the church. I don't have to love Christians to love Jesus. And Scripture corrects our thinking on that. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And John goes on to say this in verse 23, chapter 3, verse 23 in 1 John. He says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. And if you think about it, this is exactly what Paul's seeing in his audience. The people he's writing to, he's thankful for the same things that John is saying. These two things need to be present in the life of every believer. And actually, if you, if you go through Paul's letters, you can see these two qualities put side by side in several of his letters. These two elements, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, love for the saints, must go hand in hand. If you separate them from another, there are problems. Something is very, very wrong. That is not to say, by the way, that the church is always perfect. Because it's not. And it's also not to say that if you hang around Christians long enough, there's no chance of you getting hurt or burned. Because that happens. But nevertheless, we're not to isolate ourselves. We understand people are human. We have a flesh nature. 
And sometimes that causes people to get hurt. But faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for the people he ransomed and redeemed must be present in everybody's, in every Christian's life. And Paul sees these two qualities in the lives, in the lives of his recipients, and that's why he's thankful for them. That's also how he knows that they've been recipients of the blessings that he outlined in verses 3 to 14. And we can't miss the fact that he's actually expressing his love for them in one of the easiest and yet the surest ways. See, he says you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you need to love one another. Well, he's expressing his love for them in maybe the easiest way, and that is praying for them. Praying for them. Because we pray for and about things that we love, things that we value, things that are important to us. And perhaps, therefore, the most accurate or maybe one of the simplest indications of a love for the brethren is simply whether or not you pray for them. I know that my first couple of years here as a pastor, Saturday nights, man, I got about three, maybe four hours of sleep every week on Saturday nights, and I would just stay up thinking of the people in the church and praying for each one, individually and collectively as a, as a body. Truth and love. That's what this is about. Truth and love. They go hand in hand and dangerous things happen when we try to divorce them or when we try to figure out what's true apart from the cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. And so as we examine ourselves, these are two elements that we should be looking for, two, two aspects, two characteristics that we should be looking for within ourselves. These are qualities that should characterize each and every individual Christian and each and every collective body of believers. It is great to have good doctrine. Doctrine that points to Christ. Doctrine that exalts Christ. That is very good. Good doctrine is important because it informs and it directs the actions that proceed from the doctrine. And we are a church that is firmly committed to teaching and to promoting good and true and right doctrine. But we must be characterized both by faithfulness to the Lord, that is our, our obedience to His commands, and by our love for one another. That's the type of church that Paul was thankful for because that's the type of church that God is pleased by. It's the way he designed us to operate. They weren't a bunch of spiritual islands. They were a continent in Christ, Jew and Gentile were united as one. They were brought together. They were united. They were a community brought together in truth and love as a family by the grace of God for the glory of God. And that's the kind of church that we need to be too. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for sending Jesus to ransom and redeem us. And Father, we confess that we could never earn 
or deserve or merit your grace. But we thank you that we have been granted grace as a free gift, not that we could ever possibly deserve it, but simply out of your love for us. And so, Father, we do pray that your grace would change everything. Not only would it make us people who firmly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also a people who are committed to loving the people that he died for. So, Father, we pray that you would give us a greater sense of these two characteristics in our own lives and in our life together as a church. That Christ would be glorified in our faithfulness to him and in our love for one another. It's in his name we pray. Take me.